Okay, Acts 8. Uh, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Is the gospel you believe one worth inviting others to believe in, even if it makes suffering likely or certain? Is the gospel you believe one worth inviting others to believe, even if it makes suffering highly likely or certain? You see, the men and women of verse 4 are suffering. They're saying goodbye to home, possessions, community. They've experienced grief at the loss of a dear brother and fear of violence against themselves or because of their commitment to Jesus. They're believing the apostles that God has made Jesus crucified, Lord and Christ. They're suffering because of that commitment to Jesus and yet they're not keeping quiet about it. They're gospeling the word, inviting others to come and confess Jesus Christ, Jesus as Christ and Lord. And so they plainly think the gospel of Jesus, the word they preach, is worth inviting others to believe, even if it makes suffering certain. Now, would you be like them? I guess that's the big question. It's a question about your enthusiasm in a sense for the gospel. It's to ask you that question and to help develop that same kind of gospel resilience that we see in these scattering Jerusalem believers that we're looking at Acts 8 to 12 over this weekend. And we need to ask ourselves that question for we live in a time where it's now apparent that to ask many of our neighbours to believe the gospel is to invite them to suffer. See, our Muslim friends... Uh, some of whom we baptised last night, for them it means loss of family and what can be a close supportive community. For some it means even threat of death. For some of our Iranian believers, because in the baptismal interview I actually asked them, because Jesus says count the cost, I asked them what will it cost you to be baptised because there's no going back after baptism, especially if it's on YouTube. Well, for some of them, it's never being able to return to their ageing parents and some, one or two, have left children in Iran. What about our same-sex attracted friends? To invite them to believe the gospel is to invite them to a life of celibacy, to deny them sexual fulfilment. What about our friends from atheistic households? For them, it will mean division from their parents, and often ridicule most of our friends these days, for them to believe the gospel is to expose them to being shamed by their more enlightened colleagues. Because identity politics is leading to a shame culture where you're either approved socially or you are publicly shamed. Being, say, homophobic or racist or whatever the term is. And, of course, it means dislocation of friendships. So is the gospel you believe one worth inviting others to believe in, even if it makes suffering highly likely 
or certain. Because you see, if we entertain doubts in our minds as to whether it's worth it, we will hold back, we'll be reluctant to speak about our faith with others, to invite them to our gatherings, to suggest that they actually need to change. They need to change their minds and hearts and trust Jesus. Now intellectually, I suspect most of you would say you have no hesitation in affirming that the gospel is worth something suffering for to believe. Intellectually, no hesitation. You're committed to the objective truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. You say you believe Jesus is Lord objectively with one well, the one with all authority to judge and forgive. You affirm what we heard the apostles say, that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. I suspect you affirm that. But I also suspect many of you are emotionally hesitant. You're saying, yes, the gospel's worth suffering for with your head, but you have reluctance in your hearts. Hesitant, because, well, if we've lived in a supportive Christian environment, it's sometimes a shock to us to be seeming to ask another to forego what we enjoy, and which those things we've often associated with believing and valued. Many of us growing up in Christian families have known warm, supportive families. We've grown up in a community that's affirming if we're married, we have a good relationship or aspire to a good relationship. Christian communities put a lot of emphasis on that with our wife or husband. And so there's dissonance in our hearts when we're inviting someone to an experience which for them will be so different from our own. Isn't that right? You, you, you feel bad, don't you? You enjoy family, friends, community. But say you might be talking to your Muslim friend and you know that if he actually believes, he will lose friends and family and community. We're hesitant. Oh, we're hesitant because there are certain beliefs in our culture, beliefs that have seeped into Christian consciousness that make it almost emotionally impossible for us to ask someone to follow Jesus if it will mean suffering. Ed Shaw, in a book that I'll review later, puts his finger on a couple of those cultural beliefs. One is, if it makes you happy, it must be right. And the converse is, if it makes you unhappy, then it can't be right for you. We put a premium on being happy. It's our culture's goal and the validation, usually, of any action or belief. It makes me feel good. So how can we ask someone to embrace something that we think will make them unhappy. Oh, a second belief. Suffering is to be avoided, whether it's physical or psychological or emotional. And so, you should never invite someone to a course of action that will bring suffering upon them. Uh, th those are deeply ingrained in our cultural beliefs. And our Christian culture has put a premium on, well, in a sense, happiness in this world, just the kind of Christian kind. Happy families, satisfying intimate relationships, purposeful work. And so our heads are saying, yes, it is worth inviting someone to believe the gospel if it means suffering, but our hearts hesitate. And that hesitancy finds expression. Where we have that emotional hesitancy, we'll become reluctant to press the claims of Jesus. 
especially on our happy friends. We make ourselves the judges of other people's circumstances, only speaking enthusiastically about Jesus if we think it will make someone happier. Oh, and that dissonance in our lives between what we say we believe and what we feel is actually dangerous. Unless we resolve it, it will either silence us, that's probably the best case scenario, or it will make us rethink our own commitment to Jesus. We will back off on him being the only saviour of the world. So it's important to ask ourselves, our hearts as well as our heads, is the gospel you believe one worth inviting others to believe, even if it makes suffering highly likely or certain? And it's important that we actually have conviction, heart conviction, that the answer is yes, for our neighbour's good, for our own perseverance, and for rightly honouring Jesus. Now these believers in Acts 8, suffering themselves, show no hesitancy in inviting others to follow Jesus, inviting others to share in suffering for Jesus. Now what gave them their gospel resilience? That is gospel resilience. That's where adversity, dislocation, physical hardship, grief doesn't cause you to pause, to blink in preaching, in gospeling the word. Rather just becomes the context for your gospel proclamation. What gave them their gospel resilience? Now, in a sense, I could answer that question uh, by looking back, you know, the, the content and effect of the message, that for them, gospeling is, is telling what God has done in Jesus, his resurrection. It's, it, it's not inviting to people to share in an experience. It's telling them about events. Oh, it's a summons to repentance and faith in Jesus before it's an invitation to a lifestyle. And we often get that confused in our own heads, don't we? We, we think we're engaging people in, in sharing an experience and a lifestyle. No, it's actually telling people news, what happened, and it's inviting them to repentance and faith. So we could look at the content and effect of the message. Uh, we could look at the way Jesus prepared his followers for suffering, uh, the influence of the courageous example of the apostles and Stephen, we've seen that, Acts 5, we've got to obey God rather than men, the gift of the Spirit, the command of Jesus. But rather than look back, I want to examine with you over this weekend and then later tonight, chapters 8 to 12, uh, later tomorrow night, for these will show you gospel resilience and what sustains it. In these chapters, we'll see the goodness of the gospel, its content and effect. And we'll see that today in Philip's preaching in Samaria and beyond, but we'll also see it really on every page in Acts 9 and 10. We'll also see the reality that the spread of the gospel, saving people, is actually the project of the Father, Son and Spirit. And that was an overwhelming impression as I was reading and rereading these chapters. It's actually exciting. It's God at work. We'll see that today, but especially in chapters 9 and 10. That the Christian movement's not human-initiated, not human-sustained, not human-directed. Committing to share the gospel is not signing up to a human agenda or strategy or program that might fail. It's actually being caught up in the plan and purpose of the Almighty God to exalt Jesus as the saviour of the world, and that will never 
fail. And yes, we'll see the role of believers in this plan, all believers. You know, the big names, Peter and Paul, the lesser names like Ananias and Barnabas and even the no names in chapter 11. We'll see what role people play in this, but we above all will see that this is the work of God. And we'll see the determination of God that the gospel is actually for all people, not just ones we might think suitable, that God is determined that all here. And all of this will be presented to us in a context of realism, and realism helps resilience. Uh, realism about what believers should expect helps us uh, keep on with the gospel. These chapters are sandwiched between the death of Stephen and the death of the Apostle Paul. And in the middle, we'll have Paul's flights from those who want to kill him. So there's realism here about suffering. But there is also realism about growth, that Christ will grow his church. Our chapters are a story of God-guided growth in and through that suffering. My hope is that as we listen to God's word in these chapters, we will all develop gospel resilience, a determination to keep on speaking the gospel of Jesus to all, whatever it costs us, and a conviction, a driving conviction in our hearts that the gospel is one worth inviting others to believe without hesitation, even if it makes suffering for them highly likely or certain. The gospel is worth believing. So that's the introduction, Acts 8, where we're reminded of the goodness of the gospel of Jesus. Uh, many, as we've heard, are scattered as a consequence of the persecution that arose following the death of Stephen. And we're going to return to some of them in Acts 11.19. Acts 11.19 says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch. It's as if... Uh, it's... it's, uh, it's this will be my one AFL analogy, right? It's, it's, it's like the ball is, you know, they bounce that ball in the middle, which just seems a bizarre way to start anything. But, but, and immediately players just spread, right? Except those, of course, who all jump around the ball and stop the game at that point. But other players run away. And it, it's, this is what Acts 8-4 is like. The ball's been bounced, the play spreads, and Luke chooses to focus on Philip. But lots of other stuff is going on. And Luke self-consciously returns, in a sense, to that moment when they're spread back in Acts 11. And that's a reminder that Luke's arrangement's not necessarily strictly chronological at all. Right? Luke's actually account is selective, not exhaustive, and its arrangement here is thematic not chronological. Luke's actually going to be tracing out the impact of the gospel in one group and then returning to another group, a group that's spread to the Gentiles when he's related the necessary precursors in a sense of their work, that is God's call of Paul and God's saving of Cornelius. So, so, so just keep that spread in your mind and then you're focusing, we're returning to the others, after the necessary precursors have been dealt with. So Philip, Philip, as it said there, uh, verse 5, went down to a city in Samaria 
and proclaimed the Messiah there. Uh, Samaria was spoken of by Jesus, remember, in Acts 1.8, the great theme. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Already, just in this one verse, we see that the opposition of those who reject Jesus is actually just serving Jesus' purpose. <coughs> the gospel's being proclaimed. Witness to Jesus is being made in Samaria in accordance with Jesus' plan. But Samaria, located north of Jerusalem between Judah and Galilee, is a bit of a special case. And you'll see that I've included maps in the, uh, in the handbook and that's, I enjoy maps uh, and I always think it's nice to be able to locate where someone is and now you'll be distracted for the next few minutes, especially if you enjoy maps. I'm sorry about the map on the back. On the screen it was clickable, expandable and you could actually read the names. You might need a magnifying glass for that uh, and we'll get to that you know, when we have to find Cyrenaica and places like that. But so you can see Samaria on the first map, it's an easy map. Uh, to see. Anyhow, now let's, uh, if the only Samaritan you can think of is the Good Samaritan, uh, you might be surprised at the depth of hostility between Jews and Samaritans. For the Jews, the Samaritans were literally a bastard people. The descendants of those people settled in the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrians hundreds of years ago, and you can read about that in 2 Kings 17. Their ancestry was mixed and uncertain. They were not pure blood descendants of Abraham. And if you read Ezra, you'll remember their long lists of genealogies and people who can be certain about their descent and people who can't. And then, and then there are the Samaritans who can definitely never be certain about them. They are really beyond the pale as far as the Jews concerned. And theirs was a bastard religion. Not a pure worship of the true God, but a strange mixture of a commitment to Moses and their own teaching. So they embraced the first five books, but they disowned the temple in Jerusalem. And actually they had had their own temple on Mount Gerizim until the Jews under Judas Maccabees, until the Jews under the Maccabees came and burnt it down. So <coughs> they didn't acknowledge the prophets and they were waiting for their own Messiah, who they called the Tahib. Now, their relationship with the Jews was messy, marked by violence on both sides for centuries. And Jesus' Jewish followers were not exempt from that hostility. And so in Luke 9, you'll remember that when, you can read that when a Samaritan village refused to accept Jesus, allow him to come through because he was travelling to Jerusalem, uh, John and James asked Jesus if they wanted, if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven on them to destroy the village. And as we read in John 4, although they've been neighbouring communities for centuries, Jews normally had no dealings with Samaritans. But Philip is preaching the gospel here. And we get a bit of a sense of the content of the gospel he's preaching. So verse 5, it says he proclaimed the Messiah. <coughs> verse 12, it says he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And then they were baptised. Philip is declaring that God's kingdom, this is shorthand, has come in the person and presence of God's King Jesus. That Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has made 
the fulfillment of God's promises of the end, caught up in that one word, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, certain. That Jesus gives the spirit who's promised at the end and will raise the dead to life just as he is risen. And that Jesus will establish God's reign of righteousness and justice on the earth and that Jesus is the king with all authority. He is the name now that they can call on for salvation. He is the living one who has the power to help and save, to judge and forgive. A name that any can call on, a public name. He is proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, not a secret one. Philip is proclaiming the same gospel as the apostles, the gospel we've already heard about in chapters 2 and 3 and 4, and his work, verses 7 and 8, is accompanied by the same signs, the kind of signs seen in Peter and the apostles' ministry, say, summarised in Acts 5. Now, what we see in this chapter is how good and powerful the gospel of Jesus is. And so the first thing we see is the gospel frees from fear. In Acts 8-9, you'll meet a character called Simon. The people of the area had up till now, it says, been his followers. And he, someone we're told, practised magic or sorcery. And, and they'd been so impressed with him that they thought he was almost divine. Someone, verse 10, in touch with the realm of the gods. Now, you might be prone to dismiss Simon as a charlatan and these Samaritans as gullible and superstitious. But we need to understand their world and the place magic had in it to actually understand the goodness of the gospel. Magic and the understanding of the world magic represents was very widespread in the ancient world. And this is the first of four encounters in Acts with the world of magic. In 13, Paul confronts Elymas, the magician. In chapter 16, he meets the girl with the Pythian spirit by which she divined the future. And in chapter 19, you'll read about the burning of the magical texts in Ephesus. Magic is very much part of their worldview. And the magic we're talking about isn't the illusionism. We see Simon doing that calls the kids to flock in to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, Christmas carols and though I'm sure they're there for the thing. Anyhow, you know, card tricks and coins appearing from nowhere and that kind of thing. Magic back then was an attempt to control. It's actually an attempt to control supernatural forces to your own ends. And it's thought that you could do this if you had special secret wisdom or knowledge, say, knowledge of the spirits or God's secret names and their place in the spiritual pecking order. You know, if you could work out who could command who because they were more powerful in the world of the spirits. The practice of magic usually took the form of some kind of ritual action, maybe involving sacrifices, and an invocation or formula to enlist the help of the gods or spirits or demons. People used magic for protection from disease, much of which they thought was caused by demons, and for protection from harm and Yes, other people's magic. One of the more common archaeological artefacts are actually amulets worn around the neck or wrist that contain magical names to ward off spirits and demons, thousands of them. You go to a magician to have a demon cast out or to 
get help in seeking fame or fortune or love. Yes, there were love spells. Uh, there's, a, there's a record, of, they've dug up one, where the girl's meant to be blinded to all opposition uh, and only see this uh, man. And people would use magic to curse and harm their enemies. Uh, quite a number of curse tablets have been discovered. They're usually uh, written on lead and then folded up and a nail was driven through them, uh, just to make the point, and then thrown into wells because they were closer to the underworld. Uh, so, so that. Now, and of course, if you had no expertise yourself, and the people who burnt magic books in Ephesus were people who were, in a sense, acquiring expertise themselves, but if you had no expertise yourself, you could hire someone with a reputation for spiritual power, for communion with these spirits to help you. Now, the foundation for these actions is the belief that there's a world of spirits, whether they're the spirits of the untimely dead or astral spirits or underworld demons or divine mediators like angels who are involved in every part of the life of this world. And they can be controlled by those who know their names or had access to even greater powers who could compel the lesser spirits' obedience. If you believe in that, if you believe that about the world, then involvement in magic, paying good money to enlist expert magicians, makes good sense. It's an attempt to gain some control or security in an otherwise arbitrary universe where the gods or fate or luck determines what happens to you and those you love. And, and, and of course, this is still the mindset of animistic uh, peoples and uh, so... Uh, where Daniel and Tamami work amongst the Mien, uh, many shamans in their villages, and it's actually still the mindset. They control the spirits and protect people. But of course the world of magic is also a fearful world where your enemy may enlist some more powerful spirit than you have or some spirit may be offended by your neglect of them because they're not just passive. They're actually out there. It's a world where you could have your choice or will taken away. Where if your child falls sick, it could be the work of the demon or because a neighbour is seeking revenge for some slight and has employed a magician to curse you. It's a world where if your business venture fails, it might be because your competitor has cursed you or knows more powerful gods. The world of magic is actually a very fearful world a world that's actually destructive of trust. It was in this world that Simon's made a name for himself as someone who had knowledge and power, could enlist the help of spiritual beings, more even the help of the great God. So he had access, in a sense, to the one who had power over all the others. That is what was thought. He's a very influential figure. But when Stephen comes preaching the gospel, verse 12, things change. But when they believe Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. They actually abandoned Simon and his sorcery and gave their loyalty to Jesus. Why? Well, it's because Jesus graciously accepted them amongst his people on the basis of their repentance and faith 
and they knew they could now call on the name of Jesus. Stephen was preaching the name of Jesus Christ. That is, they could know Jesus' protection. They could have access to his help and care. And the gospel of the kingdom shows that Jesus is greater than all spirits and demons. And they witnessed this in Philip's ministry, those mighty works casting out demons. They knew that in the resurrection, Jesus was exalted over all powers and spirits exalted to rule over all. And so they had no need of Simon because knowing Jesus, they did no longer need to fear spirits and demons. And that's one of the great things about knowing Jesus and one of the clear uh, uh, consequences of his coming in ministry. He is far more powerful. You see, Jesus' power is not comparatively greater than any other spirit. The difference between Jesus' powers and the powers of spirit is absolute. It's the difference between the creature and the creator, between the power of God and dust. It's the difference between an unconquerable life and those whose greatest power is the power of death. Jesus' power is over all. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Writing to the Ephesians who are very conscious of magic, Paul could assure them that all powers, dominions, principalities were subjected to Jesus for the sake of his people, the church. Believers have access not to subordinates, but to Jesus himself. They call on the name of Jesus, the one with all authority, God amongst us himself. And Jesus is righteous and just. He isn't arbitrary and he is gracious. He doesn't need to be bribed to be interested in you or to care for you. Coming to trust Jesus through believing the gospel, the Samaritans have been set free from fear. Fear of a world populated by spirits, fear of a world in which they had no control. And that's what the gospel does, isn't it? You're no longer just bobbing about in a random universe, exposed to chance forces and malicious fate. To be a believer in Jesus is to know the one who has all authority, to know his character as kind and gracious, to know he cares for you. You have access to him, have a relationship with him where you are his. He knows you by name and cares for you. The gospel frees us from fear. Oh, and the gospel unites, it overcomes old divisions. The Samaritans trusted Jesus. They knew he was a better Lord than the reign of magic. But there's something unusual, isn't there, about the Samaritan believers. They didn't receive, verse 15, uh, the Spirit. The Spirit, <coughs> verse 16, had not yet come on any of them. Not one of them. And Luke thinks this is sufficiently unusual to record the fact. In fact, they have to wait for the apostles from Jerusalem, verse 14, to arrive and place their hands on them to receive the Spirit. Now notice, the apostles don't come and preach to them as if there was something defective in the gospel Stephen had preached. No, they come and pray and lay their hands on them. 
Now, what are we to make of this, especially as uh, we've already heard in Andrew's uh, book review, you know, the coming of the Spirit and when and how you know it's come has become an issue with the Pentecostal and Charismatic movement. So what are we to make of this? Well, the first thing is to observe uh, what we'll see again in Acts chapter 10. And this is that in Acts, there's quite a bit of variation in relation to the Spirit's coming. There's variation in the coming of the Spirit in relation to water baptism. Here it follows. In Acts 10, it precedes. And generally, Acts assumes that it comes in connection with the whole experience of conversion. Believing, being baptised, receiving the Spirit, in a sense, one set of experiences that are involved in becoming Jesus' follower. Uh, those believing on the day of Pentecost, or the Philippian jailer, say, basically receive the Spirit in that one act, believing, being baptised, receiving the Spirit. So there's variation in relation to the Spirit's coming uh, in relation to water. And there's also variation in relation to the involvement of the apostles in the Spirit's coming. We see the Spirit coming without the apostles' presence as in Paul's experience. And sometimes the Spirit comes with the apostles present but without the laying on of hands, as in chapter 2. Only here and in Acts 19 is it recorded that the coming of the Spirit is dependent on the laying on of the apostles' hands. There's no suggestion that a two-stage experience is normal or expected. This is unusual. Oh, and yes, often the Spirit will come without any visible manifestations. Uh, you see visible manifestations of the Spirit coming in the beginning of Acts 2 with those people praying in the upper room, but not on the thousands who believe in uh, where, um, who believe the apostles' teaching. You'll see visible manifestations here and in Acts 10 and in Acts 19, but nowhere else. And there's a purpose for that, and which we'll come to. So normally we expect the Spirit to come when people believe. But the variation makes it plain that the coming of the Spirit is not mechanical. And that's something we do have to remember. The Spirit is God's gift, a person, and it's under God's control. And so the important question when we meet the unusual is, why did God do it this way this time? So think again about the Samaritans. Here they are, the people who have this long history of separation from and hostility towards the Jews and Jerusalem. You see, the Samaritans claimed to be independently the people of God with a hope for their own Messiah. And it would have been easy for them to claim that Philip was sent them to allow them to relate to God through Jesus independent of the Jewish church, the Jerusalem church with its apostles, to use his preaching to them to reinforce their separation from the Jews. And then think about the Jewish Christians. It would have been easy for them to marginalise Philip. I mean, let's face it, he was a Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jew like the other seven. He wasn't an apostle and continue to think of the Samaritans as second class. Oh, we get the apostles. No, they just get Philip. And not accept them. But God does not allow that. By sending the Spirit through the apostles from Jerusalem, the Spirit who is the mark of belonging to Jesus' new covenant people, God is making it clear to the Samaritans that they have to abandon their separatism. 
and acknowledged, as Jesus said in John 4, that salvation is of the Jews and that only through fellowship with the Jerusalem apostles are they included in the people of God. And God's making it clear to the Jewish believers that he has accepted the Samaritan believers as his people, sharing the same spirit with them. One Lord, one gospel, one spirit, one people of God. The Samaritans were now members of the one people of God, the new covenant people of Messiah, and they are members on the same basis, believing the gospel, because there's nothing added to Philip's gospel. And who would be the most accepted, the most weighty witnesses of the inclusion of the Samaritans in the people of God? Well, it's actually the apostles themselves, the foundation of the church. So the Spirit doesn't come on them as it comes on others when they believe. They wait and the apostles come down and they are included and the apostles witness it. The gospel, inclusion in the people of God by believing the gospel of Jesus, overcame historical barriers, united old enemies in one new people. The coming of the Spirit made that plain, and that is still true today. The gospel unites people who are otherwise separate. And this is actually, say, a serious thing for Australia. Uh, we think that we can create unity by increasingly supporting difference. Not just difference in what you eat and how you wear, but actually difference in how you identify yourself and your fundamental commitments. That's, let me say, I'm not a prophet, but Jesus says a nation divided against itself will fall. The gospel and the unity it brings, though it's despised, is actually the hope for this country because it overcomes those core differences and historical separations. The gospel's good. Oh, and that brings us to the third great good the gospel brings. The gospel brings the spirit to all who believe. The spirit who assures us of our relationship with God, crying, Abba, Father, in our heart. I mean, that's just the point of the apostles' visit, isn't it? That they receive the spirit. This is the spirit who will change us to have a character marked by love, joy, peace. The spirit who is the down payment of all that God has promised us and turns us in longing to the day when the fullness of what is promised is ours, the redemption of our bodies. The gospel brings the spirit and that is a great good. And the strange incident with Simon again makes it clear that the coming of the Spirit is not about spiritual power for the elite, for their enrichment, but is the gift of the Lord Jesus to all God's children, their birthright on the basis of faith. Simon's request, you read about there, when Simon saw verse 18 that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, of course, uh, by the way, this is just trivia, what is the word for the attempt to uh, purchase what are called spiritual benefices, positions in the church? What's the word for the attempt to purchase those with money? This is simony, yes, excellent. 
and this is where it comes from, that attempt to purchase spiritual benefit. You can install that up. Uh, but if you read Reformation Church history, simony was one of the great sins. They were selling off these ecclesiastical benefices, including, uh, ironically, the, the capacity to be a bishop in the Catholic Church. And what can bishops in the Catholic Church do? And happens at confirmation. They put their hands on you and you get the spirit. Anyhow, so it's probably a good word for it, isn't it? Anyhow, Simon's request comes from his long acquaintance with the magic worldview and his failure to decisively repudiate. You see, he is still in all his following of Philip in verse 13, interested primarily in power, power for himself. And it's possible, isn't it? And we, we see this, to be attracted to the gospel for some of its features that we value while not ever really hearing the gospel. Possible to be attracted by community, by loving friendship. Now, we, I actually heard that in the testimonies, and, and that, that's a good place to start, but if that's all you're there for, you actually have never really believed. You've never really real, realised that you're actually being addressed by the living God himself in the gospel, called to relate to him. You see, Simon has thought of the apostles as just like himself, only more powerful, with a more powerful spirit subject to their control. And thinking they're just like him, he thinks their goal is personal enrichment in the command of this spirit, and so he offers them money to regain his position of influence and power in the community. Even though he has believed, he's still shaped by the false beliefs, the false worldview that he's not abandoned. <coughs> and that failure threatens his eternity. You see Peter's response, may your money perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart's not right with God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. That false belief threatens his eternity. How dangerous it is, isn't it, to seek to conform the works of God to an understanding of the reality, of, uh, to an understanding of reality that revolves around ourselves. To think that God is just there for me. <coughs> His heart is not right with God. It's still enslaved to self, still anxiously trying to secure by his own efforts his own security and wealth and happiness. In their response, the disciples radically reject that magic worldview and radically reject the idea that we stay in control to use the faith for our own purposes. The spirit is the gift of the living God to all who believe. It is not and never the possession of an elite for their enrichment. It's the gift of the relationship of faith. God marking us out, every believer, as his own, given to do God's work in our lives, not our work. It's to help us to live subject to our Father, not to subject God to our agendas. The gospel brings great good. It sets free from fear 
<coughs> it unites where the world separates and it brings the spirit. Uh, but God's not done with Philip yet. He directs Philip onto the desert road that goes down to Gaza where he has an extraordinary encounter with a eunuch, a man who occupied a significant role in the court of the Queen of Ethiopia. Now there's much in that short episode. In this short episode there's the interplay of God's initiative and the readiness of believers to speak of Jesus. You see the meeting is plainly the work of God. It's the Spirit who has brought Philip there. Yet Philip, obedient to the Spirit, is actually the one who has to ask the question. Do you understand what you are reading? The question that gets the conversation going. Uh, there's that interplay. There's also the wonder that God who sends a messenger to a whole people group also knows and cares for individuals. Isn't it nice the way those two things are juxtaposed? A whole people group and just one person. This is just a little window on what God is always doing. He's arranging things so he brings the gospel to those he wants to save. Every one of us knows that God has dealt with us individually to bring us to faith in Jesus. And there is also what shocks us and should make us think. I don't know if you saw it, but there's no follow-up. Who planned the follow-up after the mission to the Gazan eunuchs? You know, uh, the eunuch has the scripture and the spirit, and in his case, God thinks that's sufficient. We shouldn't let our worry about what will happen next make us hold back on sharing the gospel where we have opportunity. Philip knew the spirit had brought him there, could trust the spirit, and he spoke, there's lots here, but I just want to focus on the good the gospel brings. Two more things. So the eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Who is it speaking of, he asks. And Philip, beginning at that passage, tells him the good news of Jesus. And what is the good news that starts at that passage? Well, it's the good news, isn't it, that Christ has died for our sins, that his death atones for our sins. Now, you're probably familiar with the passage, but let me just read some of it again. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. See, that's the good, isn't it, the gospel brings. It's the good of being able to say, he was pierced for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquities. I hope you can say that, that the punishment that brought me peace, peace with God, peace forever, was on him. By his stripes I am healed. That by his death the Lord Jesus has justified me before God, now and tomorrow and forever. The gospel brings that forgiveness and peace with God 
And the gospel includes the excluded in the great hope. Because Jesus has borne our sin, he's made it possible for the excluded to be included in the hope of the new heaven and earth. And that is the great hope, isn't it? Because it involves all creation, it involves forever. Because there'll never again be pain or death or grief. Now, eunuchs were among the excluded. Deuteronomy 23 says, No one who's been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. And so when he went up to Jerusalem, he never got beyond the court of the Gentiles. Excluded. But for the faithful, there is in Isaiah the promise of inclusion. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and to hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. It's the promise of being able to be in God's presence forever and to enjoy the good of his presence. What we see here is that the gospel fulfills that promise, brings that inclusion. For in Christ, believing in him, each one of us, no matter how deformed or disfigured we are, whether that's psychologically, emotionally, physically, in Christ, we are whole, holy and acceptable to God. The eunuch believed the good news about Jesus preached by Philip from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 53. And he says, what can stand in the way of me being baptised? He gets out of the chariot, goes down to the water, who knows how much there is and who cares. He some, I actually say that because some people do. Uh, right? uh, and he receives the sign of being united to Christ by faith, that a sign that assures him that he is saved, he's washed clean, he's forgiven, he is among the people of God to whom God guarantees by his spirit the new heaven and the new earth, he is included forever and will know God. And he goes on his way rejoicing. Is the gospel you believe the good news that Jesus has died for our sins, been buried, been raised to reign by the Father, one worth inviting others to believe, even if it makes suffering for them certain. Yes, because the gospel of Jesus brings incomparable good to the Samaritans, to the eunuch, to all who repent and believe. And reading Acts are baptised as a sign of that repentance and belief. To, it brings incomparable good for all who are brought into Jesus' family to live for him, assured that his promise of forgiveness is for them. You see, the gospel brings us freedom from fear in a world we cannot control, for it brings us into relationship with the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus, and people know that. They open their papers, read about Donald Trump and King Jong-un, and they think, why am I putting money away in my super? Right? This is a world where you can't control the gospel brings freedom from fear. The gospel brings unity, real unity, not papered over the cracks unity, but unity in a new people of God. The gospel brings us God's spirit, the life of the age to come, the spirit of adoption, the 
turns us to God to cry, Father. The gospel brings us forgiveness and cleansing from our sins, peace with God. The gospel brings us hope, whatever our circumstances, that we will be whole and equal citizens of the kingdom and so the gospel brings joy. Joy that endures even as our lives wane and our lives are on a one-way trip. The gospel brings what all need and what is worth more than this life itself to have. If you know that for yourself, you know it is worth everything. And even if you know it will bring suffering, you will urge your friends to believe with conviction that you are actually offering them life and riches in offering them Jesus. So make sure you do know that for yourself. And you nurture that knowledge in yourself because that will make you a resilient sharer of the good news of Jesus. That will overcome the dissonance our culture has created between our heads and our hearts. It will help us resist those worldly ways of thinking that seep into our hearts and minds and make us reluctant to share the word that will bring life and joy, the word that will bring an eternal treasure. And you can nurture, you can nurture that knowledge, the knowledge of the gospel in yourself, can't you? By remembering each day the gospel, remembering that you're saved and what you're saved from and what you're saved for, and by helping yourself remember, by meeting together and reading God's word. You can nurture that consciousness in yourself by living as a child of God yourself, in love with the Father, right? Each day turning to him crying out to him, praying to him. Oh yes, and you can nurture that in yourself by giving thanks each day. And as you do that, you'll share the gospel with all because that is God's will. Remember what Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Make disciples of all nations. And we've started on that journey. We've seen the marginal included, the Samaritans and the eunuch, but there is still the end of the earth. How will it get there? Well, God's going to show us how he's going to get it there in chapters 9 to 11. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray in your mercy that we would so know the good of the gospel for ourselves, be so conscious of it every day, that in trusting Jesus, we've been given your spirit. We've been forgiven. We've given an eternal hope. We've been made one people and we've been set free from fear. Help us to so know the benefits of the gospel ourselves that we are like these believers we read about, that when they suffered hardship, they still preached. They still invited others to come and know the life they have found. Now please make us like them, we pray, because we know the same gospel, the same Lord, and have the same spirit as they do. In Jesus' name, amen.